0: Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you are listening to No Sleep Till Sober, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. And this week, I'm at the Starbucks headquarters in Seattle. It's called the Starbucks Center, is that right? Yeah. In uh, Seattle, Washington, speaking with Barry Gordon, a former co-owner of the independent record label Barsook Records, based in Seattle, and founded in 1998, Barsook Records. Uh, has been an influential force in surfacing a lot of great indie rock out of the Pacific Northwest over the past 20 years, some of those bands being Death Cab for Cutie, Fantagram, Natasurf, and Menomina. Very welcome to the show, sir.
1: Thank you. Great to be here.
0: Uh, we also have Mr. Kevin Reed. He's a good buddy of mine who brokered this little uh, interview. He has been reluctant to appear on the show. However, I will get him on the show eventually <laughs> at some point. So, so you guys have been buddies. you worked together at Starbucks. Uh, Kev, he's an old friend of mine. I didn't have a musical pusher when I was younger, but he was my musical pusher when I was, you know, in my 30s. He supplied me with CDs, probably what, like eight or nine of them. And they had, you know, anything from Arcade Fire, who, you know, he kind of discovered, by the way. <laughs> formal- I've heard
2: that. <laughs> Tiny mixtapes. Tiny mixtapes.
0: I remember seeing, where, where did we see them? Is it the Opera House?
2: No, I saw them at the Horseshoe Tavern right before Funeral was breaking.
0: And you said to me, no one knew who Arcade Fire was at this time. Uh, I had no idea who they were. And he was hyping this band in a big way. And he said, listen, you got to come and see this band. You really have to see this band. And so we saw that they're fantastic. And then he said, uh, you know, after the set was done, somebody else was playing, I don't know who it was. Kev said, I'm going to go off and talk to Wynne Butler. I had no idea who that was. And so he's over on the sidewall talking to Wynn. They're having a little chat. Six months later, they were opening for David Bowie, I believe, right?
2: Yeah, I think I think he knew it was about to happen um, when I chatted with him. It was only briefly. It was Lee's, Lee's Palace, actually. It wasn't a horseshoe.
0: So you guys both have a tremendous ear for talent, I will tell you that. A Lack of Color, we talked about that before we started taping. A Lack of Color was on one of those CDs by Death Cab for Cutie, and I keyed into that song. I was so dialed into it, I used to play it over and over and over again. And you have a gold record, I understand.
1: That is true. The story of Death Cab is when it begins, it begins for me in 1999. I used to be on the road a lot. And my friend who started Barsuk Records and ultimately found Death Cab, he would just every weekend be like, you got to come out Friday night or Saturday night. These shows, you got to check out this band. And I had put them off over and over and I... Finally, he's like, if there's one band, just please come out tonight. There's a show at the OK Hotel, which was a bar that was gone in like 2000. And he said, come on out. There's a show with Western State Hurricanes. I just want you to see this band from Bellingham. So I got there with 15 minutes left in a set. And I remember getting in there. There's like 20 people in there. Their Death cubs not even the opening band. And this might have been their sixth or seventh show. It was three songs off Something About Airplanes, their first album. I remember being blown away by those 15 minutes. And the lights came up. And I just looked in the corner, and Josh Josh Rosenfelder, who's the founder of Barstool, was just looking at me, and he was just nodding, like, "Do you do you understand?" what's what this is you understand what's about to happen my wife doesn't like to hear the story because i said this is the only time in my life where it is love at first sight like (laughs) it wasn't with you so i just i gotta be honest like i knew this was i knew this and and afterwards we actually had the conversation like is this a gold? this is a platinum selling potential artist? like so over the you know being a part of our Souk in those early days where he founded the label but very quickly like I wanted to be a part of it. This is the, you know, the embryonic phase of Souk where it's like you're getting stuff into stores through consignment. Mm -hmm. You're trying to scale and you're scaling on the backs of a band that's going, you know, pretty meteoric rise after the first couple albums. So Mm -hmm. Transatlanticism, I remember hearing that album after the after, uh, the initial mixes where we got it. And the truth is, I remember being disappointed by it. Really? Yeah. (laughs) I remember listening to Transatlanticism. And I was like, who's going to listen to this eight and a half minute, like eight minute song? What? Why is this like in the middle of the album, the sequencing? You know, I was underwhelmed by it. And like looking back now on it, like I see how wrong I was of like, and I've told Kevin, like most of my judgment in Barstool Records is probably most of the time wrong. (laughs) Like a lot of the bands. That's not true.
2: Some of the stories you've told
1: Some of them are good, but like, it's like half the time when you're right about a band and then half the time you're like, you're just dead wrong. But I, you could tell like Death Cab was going to be a huge thing from the beginning. You know, I was dead wrong about that. How important that album would be and kind of the Mm -hmm. pantheon of Barsuk record, you know, releases.
2: It's interesting you say that. I don't know if I've ever asked you this, Brent. I often don't like a record that I end up loving in the beginning. Like it takes some time. Like, something that's too immediate and catchy, I think, is, like, empty calories sometimes in music yeah. doesn't have the staying power. So, I don't know if you guys it It's the
0: true. Kind of I, there's different types. I mean, I've heard songs that I instantly love, and actually, A Lack of Color was like that. Mm. So, the, you know, and, and and you can remember those songs over the course of your life. As soon as you hear it the first time, it's like, wow, it, it grabs you by the shirt.
1: That is a song, though. Like, if you think of the, the skin by, you know, the criteria of yeah. some of the songs, like, that's a song, but it just how it's mixed... Yeah. It stands out. You'd sit up and take notice. Um, it's deceptive, like, because that closes the album, I, it, I believe. A, yeah, it's
0: the like, track in the records. Yeah. So, were you uh, present for, like, the recording of it and the mixing of it and those sort of things?
1: Uh, never present in the studio, okay. just more like initial mixes, or we could hear something, you know, very precious around that process. So, occasionally, Josh would give feedback on mixes. Yeah. I've told Kevin the story that that we got to the point where it was about sequencing and track selection for the record and Josh came back and said, "Yeah, they want to take substitute a couple of the songs off the initial mixes. One of them, they want to take out is Title and Registration." Wow. And another one I was like there's no way that's... Happened. Like, Thailand registration, what are you talking about? Is this a joke? Like, and we argued through the night yeah. of, like, that's, like, a third single, potentially. Like, yeah, why would sure. you... There's a hook? Like, why would they think that? They're too close to it. And Josh took that back and, like, ultimately shaped some of the... shape wow, that really? getting on the album. So he had a lot more... I wasn't part of that. He had a lot more influence of the band around okay. that. But even then, like, they decided they're... They chart their own course, yeah. And if they ask for feedback, you got to be probably careful what you're really saying about the in the creative process. But no, yeah. I was never in the studio. Okay, I'd
0: always wondered, but you know that song. There's noise. Do you know what I'm talking about? Mm.
1: A lack of color. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's some haunting, like ambient, scent, like that's what is the, that? I don't, I I don't know why, I don't why know. that was in there. He puts that in a lot. If you go back and listen to those early albums, there's yeah. a track on every album that has kind of that. Really? Eh? It definitely adds to that song. Like yeah,
0: yeah, no, no no idea. Yeah. I always wondered about that. Okay, so shall we get into your tunes, sir? Yes. It's gonna be interesting to talk about
1: these. Your first one is by throwing muses, it's two step. So just a little context on this one, because I mentioned Josh. Uh, who's the founder of Barsouk. We've known each other now coming up on 30 years. So wow. we met in college. Mm-hmm. Kevin always gives me grief is because I think you could do this podcast for 20 years and you're never going to find someone whose favorite bands are the Smiths and Rush.
2: Not possible. <laughs> you're not going
1: to find it. And the reason why is because like I grew up, my brothers were 13 years and 10 years older. And what they were listening to, right? When I'm a little kid, is Who or probably Pink Floyd, and those are the things that you consumed. So you knew nothing different. You know, thank God they weren't like listening to disco or anything at the time. But like yeah. I, rem- you know, I'm growing up like playing the Who's Tommy over and over, yeah. and I didn't know any different. And all and most of like what I'm listening to in the '80s is you know pretty straightforward. Like maybe there's some Talking Heads in there. Only going to college and like Josh being my, uh, um, he was in the wing freshman year. He functioned as just like this mixtapes of musical like, pusher. yeah, he's pushing, he's crafting little things to think about. And like, it's then where like my eyes opened to so many different bands. I would never even heard of, yeah. right. In my freshman year. So that's when like I tell Kevin, like I discovered the Minutemen, right. Fugazi. Nice. And, like, the game changed there. Like, I'm listening to, like, Husker Du, and we are talking about, you know, I'm taking music out of his dorm room. Um, And over time, he's just given me more, like, things to listen to. And one of the bands was Throwing Muses, which i have never heard of. They're, like, from Newport, Rhode Island. And he gave me an album, I think, like or listened to an album. Must be their first one, House Tornado. And they're pretty raw. Like the songwriting's raw until you get to the I think till you get to the real Ramona, their third or fourth album. And Two Step is a song that is just a very like you can't tell me what this song's about. Like I don't think anyone knows. Like if you listen to lyrics, like it's not clear what that song's about. But it is just such a perfect example of just the the harmony between Kristen Hirsch and her stepsister, Tanya Donnelly, who went on and did belly. Uh, and the guitar, just the like the interweaving guitar lines in this song are like to perfection. And that's like I listen I remember hearing the real Ramona and it's like we talked about lack of color closing an album. Mm-hmm. Well this closes that album. And I remember when I listened, I loved the whole album. And then that song just like stayed with me. Like I didn't understand what it was about. But the way the way they mix the harmonies with the t- with the two of them, the way the guitar, like each note in the solo is like perfect for the note that precedes it. Like their guitar playing is so spot on that I think I went back and listened to the song like four times. Like yeah. it's just so amazing of a song, and it's so underappreciated in their portfolio of songs. I don't people don't talk about it. I was talking to Josh about it the other night. And I'm just like, where's Two Step? Right? Like this is an amazing song. No one ever. So like throwing muses is one of the more underrated bands. Kristen Hirsch is a songwriter. She's amazing. She went on and did solo stuff after Muses, Hips and Makers. I don't know if you ever heard that album. Oh. Mm. And Throwing Muses, incidentally, of all the shows that I've ever seen. What is that now? 25 Years in Seattle, the Throwing Muses tour where they, it was an album called Limbo. Yeah. Uh two albums later from this where this song was that's the best show I've ever seen. Jo- and Josh and I would argue we were like that is that show was was that the Crocodile Like the sound was perfect. I remember thinking, like, I wish they'd play this song. And then that was the song they played. It was like (laughs) everything. It was like my set list. Um, Amazing songwriters. And that's like a song I just love. I just love to listen to and just on headphones. And it's it's pretty. That is the skin vibrate kind of just stays with you and like can't get it out of your system after you listen to it. So did you you know throw
2: music? I knew them a little bit. um, It's funny. Brent and I talk about this sometimes. There's there's just so much. I think we're fortunate to live in an era where we were close enough to everything amazing that happened in the '60s and '70s, and then lived, I think, in really a golden era of music. It was just so hard. There was so much, and um, there's only so much time. So, no, I was never. Did you guys go to school in Boston? Is
1: that where you were in Boston? I grew up in Boston. Okay. Yeah. So, as a kid, you had like Jay Giles. The yeah. Cars, Jay Giles, and and they were huge, centerful. like, right around that full freeze frame. You had Boston, who, like, you know, depending on where you are, they took, like, eight years to make an album, so... Yeah. And then the Cars, right? Yeah. The Cars, um, the romantics. I don't yeah. remember ever... You know, I was too young to be into the Boston scene, because I was out of there by high school. Yeah. Um, but apparently, like, after I left, eventually, like, they became more of a scene, um, yes. certainly. Okay, next tune is by Ramona Falls, and it's called Clover. Ramona Falls, again, and the Bar- Barsouk Records has probably put out, I think at this point, like 150 releases. I have gone on record to say that Intuit, the album, that album, might be the best songwriting, better than any De- better than any Death Cab record. Really? Uh, Brent Knopp is the singer-songwriter. He came from a band, phenomena okay. out of Portland, um, a very unique-sounding band. Yeah. And there's probably some tension in that band. He wanted to go do his own thing. Clover. Like that's like, that's a song with like, it feels like there's five or like six hooks in it. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the songs like I can relate to because of a relationship. That's like, this song just felt like a song about a relationship that's just stuck.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, And I think when I heard it, you know, given where I was like in my life, that song resonates. I feel like there's a, there's a part of the song where he's talking about my, I think there's a lyric of like, my heart just wants to know that it exists or something like, and I remember like, just, you're just listening to this album. Like this. I think it might be the third song. And then that just Clover just stands out like a sore thumb. Yeah, and I, it was so much that I just remember the first time I like paused it. I'm like, "What just happened? That is some this is tremendous songwriting." I went back and started the album over again and just kind of went through it. That is an album you should listen to. Ramona Falls, if you haven't already. I just um,
2: I just made a note in Spotify as you were talking about it because I haven't.
1: Because the sec I think he did two albums. I, the second one's not as good as the first, but the first is probably that is easily the most underrated thing that the record label ever put out, and I'm amazed mm-hmm. how it got. Like, I think got an 8.5 on Pitchfork. Huh. which is like just the if you go any higher on pitchfork it's too much and you'll it's like <laughs> it's like the stro- the strokes in like two i told you about like what do they have a nine point eight or ten for this is this it or something right like that album and you're like the expectations because
2: pitchfork had to hedge but yeah we used okay. to we used to play with my brother-in-law we used to like guess the pitchfork score it's like Seriously? a kiss of death the, i always oh, said it was yeah. above great. above
1: 9.0 could be a kiss of death <laughs> That's, you oh, want yeah, to come yeah. in around an 8.5 or 8.6 which i think is where this this record uh was but it's 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 totally a wor- uh, worthwhile listening clover's tremendous yeah yeah
0: and you know it's a great point about the strokes because they just completely flamed out you know i've made this this argument before but the strokes that they were touted as the next big thing it was almost like they didn't do their ten thousand hours. They didn't put that in because they just they were huge. And then it was almost like they kind of gave up because they weren't familiar with their yeah, new that status. Was, that was,
1: I mean, more so than the arcade. That, that was like a meteoric rise out of nowhere. Yeah. To f- cover of every magazine, they were the it for yeah. six months. Like, do you remember? It was it was right before Is This It came out.
0: Yeah.
2: And I probably pinged you about this. Actually, I didn't know the Strokes were playing at the Horseshoe. I was going to see Pete Yorn, so, oh. so Pete Yorn was headlining. Yeah, and there was this band, the Strokes, opening up, which I didn't know no anything way. about. But I planned to go down to see Pete Yorn. I probably said, "Hey, Brendan, do you want to see it?" I can't remember who I was with. So go down to Queen Street in Toronto, go to see Pete Yorn, and there's like a lineup stretched. It was all the hype about the Strokes, and again, is this it? Hadn't quite come out. I mean, whatever the first single was, I can't remember. You know, but the, the hype was enough, an and the. The buzz was enough that... And they were opening up for Pete Yorn, so it never got in. I couldn't get in. We were just... We were too far and too deep down and didn't have tickets ahead of time.
1: Uh, at that Pete Yorn, I don't think, was especially big, but... Sure, yeah. That's interesting, though, because I think of, like, the rise of Death Cab as a steady, gradual rise. They understand how the industry mm. works. Yeah. They understand, like, the respect that you give. Yeah. Like, all of the parts of when you're in an album cycle. hmm Like, they learn that slowly. Yeah. And I can't funny. imagine, like, if those guys, knowing... How hard that would be To go from here To like way up here Yeah It's just too It's too The maturity required To do it yes. It's gotta be earned Like over time like, Exactly so. And their new album Is phenomenal Just came out The new Death Cab album yeah. It's a ridiculous and album Yeah It's yeah. fantastic We've argued Like I put together Like <laughs> I think I don't know if I said it to you, but I'm like, I'm going to mathematically do this. I know all these songs. I went back and I built like a weighted model for Josh and I to argue about because that's like something you might do too. Like I was like, no, let's have the definitive argue. Like let's talk about it because it's not getting enough credit. Yeah. And so he's like, how are you weighting songs? I'm like, well, if a song is a terrible song on an album, it has to get three times the weight of a hit because it's a bad song on an album can really drag it down. You are and so to I a fault. I quanted it. I, I, but like, I think I mathematically proved like this album is so good. It was also coming on the heels of some of, of well, their worst album, which is Codes and Keys, yeah. which they would concede that's their he has. Um, yeah, I think they have. And then after that, Kintsugi's, is like halfway between the, the new one, where they're kind of extricating themselves from Chris Walla and him, and then now like there's like a rebirth of the band. So like, I think it's it's a tremendous album. And it's amazing to do it on your ninth. Yeah, right? It's freaking hard. Today. today. Yeah. 20 that's, years that's later. An incredible
0: feat in these times. Yeah. You know, people like Aretha Franklin, she did Respect on her eighth or ninth record. Bands had staying power back then, mm-hmm. but that's unheard of today. Mm-hmm. You get like one or two shots and, you know, look at Pete Yorn. You know? <laughs> True. That's incredible. Uh, next tune is by Sugar and it's
1: called Explode and Make Up. Was mentioning how we've had. A, there's a new debate where we talk about the merits of Bob Hollard versus Bob Mould. Which Bob is better? Which Bob is better? <laughs> and depending on the day, you guys should have your own show. <laughs> I think one of the best shows I ever saw was a Guided by Voices show in Austin. It was ridiculous. Like as his command of an audience, like just it's his crazy. songwriting is. But then also, like I was raised a little bit, as I mentioned, like starting in college, like Who's Kerdoo? Yeah. Uh, and then Bob Mould's rise in I think Black Sheets of Rain Workbook. It just seemed like to me he was getting better and better, and then yeah. the quality of like the sound and the recording, perfect. And the sugar, I thought Copper Blue is just a phenomenal. It might be one of my twenty favorite records of all time. So yeah. somewhere in here, there's a Bob Mould song, and I struggled. It has to be one of these seven. I don't know which one it is. I was going back and looking in Who's Could Do catalog, and and then I thought of this song, which, again, maybe there's a trend of all these songs that kind of close albums, but Explode to Make Up. That song is just kind of a... It has one of the most awesome Bob Mole guitar solos. If you feel like you're in the scene, I was... Maybe it's 93, 94. I know that I was in a terrible like a relationship breakup, and I remember that song of just like feeling like here it comes, here comes this intense blow up of like screaming at it. It Just like that song captures that the way it fades out and just his haunting reverb that just stays with me. And, uh, of all the songs, like I always go back, I go back to that, uh, My son is playing. He's been playing drums now for three years. I'm like, you got to learn the sugar catalog. Like, get into that. And so that's the song. He's like, that's that seems like that's a really good song. Um, So he had to show up in one of the seven. And his voice, part of being in the call, like, so I was in this small college in Colorado Springs. Yeah. And I was part of this group, it's like the, the group that puts on concerts in the campus. This is like a like a, a small campus. And it was called Live Sounds. And I remember like, awesome, like Sugar's coming. We're going to put Sugar on. They were playing a show in Denver the night before yeah, in like a place that would be like a 2,000-seat arena. And we're going to spend X amount of dollars to get them to come here. Mm-hmm. And I remember meeting Bob. I got to meet him, which is just, you know, cool. I think I just said, like, do you want some, do you want some water? Would you like some water? <laughs> yeah. I just remember the husky voice, and like I, I thought it was like this, is so like one of my favorite albums. And there's Bob Mould. Um, I am drawn to his songwriting. I'll go back to it, Guided by Voices, and Bob Mould and Husker Du. Like they just, I just keep coming back. I get, I get, gra- I gravitate back to the same stuff in the catalog. And I was telling mm. Kevin how it's like. I just find myself. I don't listen to a lot of new stuff because I feel like I was part of a golden age of music. I'll just go back to the catalog. Why would I? I don't need to try any stuff. I just know I can go listen to Candy Apple Grey and I can have that, yeah. you know, and
0: it's like... So many people do that. Though. Yeah. It's just such a common thing. I'm so guilty of that too.
1: Yeah. You only have so much capacity. Yeah. I can't say anything about Bob Moore's last like 10 years. and got some hits or misses, but...
2: His last song was pretty good. Was pretty good? Yeah. It was.
0: Okay. So we're going back to Death Cab. This is from the second record, I think. So
1: recently... when sort of the songs called Company Calls Epilogue. Epilogue. Yeah. Yeah. In the promotion of Thank You for Today, Ben was asked to rank all the albums in order of like his favorite to the least favorite. Wow. And not only that, did he just like he took that exercise seriously? Like he got into each album, like the hits or misses, had no problem talking about like these are you know, it's almost like looking at your artwork that you put up on the refrigerator like years later, like, ugh, that's some that's (laughs) undercooked. And he would always – that's his expression. And he was asked, like, his – his, the songs that are, he's, like, the most proud of, two of them are more recent. But this one, because the one that I think he he ranked, like, in the top – he was, like, these are among the three – this is among the three best songs I've ever written. Mm-hmm. If you've listened to this song, of all the early Death Cab, that – Again, like kind of a cinematic, like you are in the scene of like, you don't quite understand what's happening. This unrequited love Mm -hmm. and crashing a wedding day. (laughs) So vivid. It's such a powerful song. It's like everything comes together perfectly in that song. Another song, I remember when I listened to Facts for the first time, and I knew, you just knew, this 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 just stands out. Yeah. Uh, you know, Josh and I will argue about, like, what are the best Death Cab songs? And I still think that might be, num- that's number one really, for huh? me. It's yeah. it's in his top three, too. Like, I debated, because I knew it was going to have one Death Cab song in the seven. Yeah. It was either this, or there's a song off the first out el- something about airplanes, called Line of Best Fit, yeah. which is the last song on that album, too. And that has... Again, like I mean, you talk about elements of lack of color, just kind of these. The, what Chris Wall is doing with sound, and it has a backup vocalist that's singing like it feels like a half step flat or something, like uh-huh. something not quite right. But it just adds to the uniqueness of this song. But yeah. Epilogue, as far as lyrics and just like all things come together in that song, and I think it's probably one of their best songs that they've written. I don't know Have you heard. Do you like Facts? Have you listened to?
2: Yeah, I mean, I um, back to what you were saying earlier about the longevity of Death Cab. They are a band I've stayed with. I don't think I, I knew of them right away. I think the photo album is where I first picked. Yeah, them Yeah, it's
1: two thousand three. Yeah,
2: but I liked them enough that I went back. So yes, they're on a short list of yep. bands that just have just had that staying power for me too. It's really hard. It's hard to hard to do.
0: Yeah, certainly it is. Uh, Next is Maria Taylor and Xanax. I do not know this.
1: So Maria Taylor, I'm not like, I don't listen to her seat. I think she's been putting out solo records. She was part of the duo Azure Ray Mm -hmm. on Saddle Creek Records. She was, I think she was on everything on Saddle Creek, which was big, I think in like 2001 to 2010. I don't know, out of Omaha. Connor Oberst. I think this might have been her first solo record. This song I put on because I think a lot of my life, there's a lot of, you know, anxiety and depression. And that song for me, I remember listening to that album of like the whole, if you listen to the song, there are all these things to be like scared of or fearful of Mm -hmm. to, you know, the fearful of a plane going down or driving in the rain, you know, but it also talks about like how that fear can get in the way of like, you know, letting go in a relationship. It yeah. could actually hurt. It really impairs your ability to give yourself over to loving someone. Mm-hmm. And I think that was 2005. I was thinking of that like setting the stage. I had finished grad school. I, I was doing a lot of traveling. It was just like a really isolated time. Yeah. And I got that album because someone had recommended it from Saddle Creek. And her vocals are extremely haunting. Like, mm-hmm. that stays with you. And so that song like really resonated with the... Like how I was dealing with kind of anxiety or fears at the time, loneliness. But I put it on, like, my wife's like, what the heck's that? I don't think she's that well-known, but. Yeah, I'm going to check that
0: out. Uh, Next is Morrissey and Southpaw.
1: So I said, as I mentioned, like, ideally the Smiths would have shown up in high school because it would have been very beneficial for them to show up in high school. Like how I related to all of the challenges of high school. But they showed up better late than ever in college, like right out of the gate. I was just amazed by Mm -hmm. – it's five or six albums. And there's only a few bands that had that quality in that short a period of time. Obviously, like Queen is Dead was like the first foray into, you know, Morrissey and Mar. And then Bona Drag showed up with his first solo album. Loved it, and Morrissey t- had played such a huge part in my life. Like yeah. uh, I've seen him uh, live, I took my wife to see him. Like he took my son to see him this last year. So I just think his his songwriting and his lyrics. I've had the argument with Josh that like Lennon, McCartney, I'm gonna take Morrissey and Marr. Wow, I'm gonna take them because I think wow. they're the t- I think they're the best songwriting duo of all time. I know that no one. I'll be the minority in that argument, but. I still think those five, like Strange Ways, Queen is Dead, Hatful, like those are tremendous. So Morrissey's Catalog, like there's a lot of great songs. Southpaw Grammar came out in 1995. Really, you know, I was out here at the end of 94 into 95. I started my first job here. And my first job was like a 75 or 80 hour a week. (laughs) job, some project, yeah. utilities merger of all exciting things you could work on. That's all. Yeah, it's tremendous. <laughs> and you're sitting in some boardroom doing some number crunching and I remember I'd listen to that album over and over because it was new. Yeah. I think the idea of Southpaw of like fighting left handed or like there's something unique about that and I think it probably, there's a the meaning of this song probably for like Morrissey and maybe a sexuality of that, but for me there's something about this song, just the guitar work, the sound of it, it just feels like you're in the middle of a tornado. It also it, it for me, it captures this feeling of like youth that's very fleeting. Your mates and you turn around and they're gone. I don't know, the lyric to me of like you ran back to Ma, which set the pace for the rest of your days. Just the sadness of like staying home or like yeah. not venturing out or like that some of the best times are like, and you look back on that, on those times of youth. That's what resonates for me. I don't know that he also sings this line of the girl of your dreams was is sad and lives all alone, like that you missed out on something, and he just sings it over and over. And I just like that lyric just never gets out of my head. And and then it's followed by like five minutes of crazy cacophony, you know, yeah. the cacophony of the guitars, and it just like builds to. This tension. It's unlike any song. Like, it's weird because up until that point, these are four or five-minute Morrissey songs. Like, it's like a 10-minute end of an album song Mm. that, like, is so fully realized for me. And I don't think many people would... Like, they're going to pick... The, the hit suede head or something off yeah, of Drag or yeah but like that that album plays a big part in my like transition to the city mm-hmm. so uh, morrissey was going to find his way into that and there's probably many other songs that could replace it you know i could add any number of them but that one it's yeah. a pretty powerful song
0: we love the art that we do because we see ourselves inside it i've always said that like a, you know be it a painting or be it music or whatever it is mostly music for me but that's where the identification the connection comes from is you see yourself inside that yeah. medium and you can relate okay your last tune is a great one it's Lazarus by
1: David Bowie i'm not i'm not going to say like i'm this, an all-time fan i've been a part of the different phases of bowie like as he evolves and some of them more love a lot more than others yeah. I feel like their points were like I don't know maybe he went through the tin machine phase I'm like oh, I'm ch- <laughs> ch- check out of this one like not quite into it mm-hmm. the word the term genius is used is overused tons yes. that is applicable. that guy is an absolute genius and Couldn't like this album the genius of knowing what was coming and the creation of Black star yeah given what he was clearly living with. And then especially, like, Lazarus, which is just, like, a goodbye. It feels, every time I hear it, it's incredibly moving. It feels like, you know, he's talking, like... I was telling Josh last night, we talked, because we talked about the song selection, which was a painful process. It took like four hours of time, but it's great. It's part, like part of the fun. Right? It's yeah. the fun. I told my wife came downstairs at one <laughs> 30. This is true on Saturday night. And she was like, what the hell are you doing? There's CDs all over the place. I'm like, this exercise is serious. Like you've got to cut this down to seven songs. I love that you do it with CDs. I did it with yeah. CDs. I had a little, some vinyl. I'm just like anything in some, like every possible song, what could be on it? And this song, every time I listen to it, I feel like I get choked up even thinking about it. Because, like, when he's singing about just that, like that bluebird, like, and I'll be free, like it's a, it's a wizard of like he's clearly like it feels like over the rainbow, he's saying goodbye, and it is so moving. The first line is "Look up here, I'm in heaven." Look up, I'm in heaven. Like, how incredible is that 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 he that he
0: did that? You know, you talk about transcendent. I mean.
1: The video is painful to watch because it's yeah. like, you know, like, it really is tough because it came out, I feel like it came out right after his passing. Yeah, it did. Um, The use of the band that he worked with, I don't know, kind of a jazz band, but mm-hmm. it's not a jazz album. It's an amazing album. Like, God, it, it like starts and it's over in like, for me, it's over in a couple minutes. Yeah. But Lazarus is just, it's haunting. Like, um, everything about the little guitar, the sparseness of it, the guitar, I just I, that that album is just such genius. So,
0: and you know, um, there was a big focus on indie music in, in your list, but you know, I always and you know, we've had this conversation before, Kev, The fact that a lot of that indie music, Arcade Fire and, and all the rest of those bands, you can hear a lot of David Bowie in there. You know, he's almost like the godfather of that whole indie movement.
1: It's like every five year he was he would evolve into the next phase, and he didn't know where it was going to be, but and, he seemed to know. Yeah. What we wanted before we knew what we wanted,
0: you know. And I've said that before about him. For him to have the vision to be able to try these things and succeed, you know, a lot of bands make these jumps and we change our sound and you know, we're going in a different direction and they fail. They never fail. I mean, Tin Machine, you know. <laughs> I see, kind of. That was.
1: You're but, a huge Bowie fan, but even that, were you a little like, I'm not sure. Like, yeah, but, but hats he was off trying, yeah. it, right.
2: You know, what it makes me think of. I'm probably not going to do this line justice, and I actually don't know the origin of it. But just hearing you talk about that, Brent, makes me think of it. And it goes something like, the great artists absorb the tension of the times and then figure out a way to reflect it back mm. to society. Mm-hmm. I'll have to look it up to see where it came from. Someone had shared it, and I think it, I think they were using it within the context of the Beatles. But yeah, I mean, I fully credit you with introducing me to Bowie. I think whatever my, what I knew of him, I don't know, it hadn't connected for me. Um, so I, I don't know if I... Written them off completely, but it just—I never had a connection. But it was actually—it was a mix CD that you had made for me yeah, uh, of all your Bowie favorites that I still have, and I love loved everything you put on
1: it. But it made me—it gave me a connection to Bowie that I'm pretty. and pretty What's happy. even more amazing about Bowie is that there's, there's the songs. He actually was a good actor. Yeah. I don't yes. know if you remember, like, Labyrinth. La- well, there's Labyrinth, the man who fell to Earth. Yeah. He was in Basquiat. He was in yeah. the Prestige. Like, he played what was it, Nikolai Tesla? Yeah. He actually had a really good presence on screen. Like, yeah. it's interesting, like how yeah. he was even good at that. You know.
0: But he, he was, um, he was apparently he was very shy.
1: Yeah, the stories after he passed, I remember like reading about all the pe- the people who would, see, you know, he would consistently do the same walks in New York City.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He's just so humble. He lived in the Bowery. There was one story where he went to his kid's school or something like that, and the teacher's a fan. He's like, "Well, I'm a fan of you." Like, it's just like he's just so humble. It was he's, like, this is amazing. Like, dude, um, I probably listen to Black Star once a month. I'm definitely listening to that album mm-hmm. again. That gets back to like, I don't listen to a lot of new stuff because I keep going back into. He gives me assignments, so like, you'll give me something where like you got to go back and listen to Wire. Do it. I'm like, I don't think I've listened to wire in like 15 years, but I do remember Pink Flag being like, that's good. That's a good album. I should go back and listen to that again. Yeah. Um, so I'll all just keep timer. revisiting. Yeah. Is it an all timer? Depends how long the list gets to be. Yeah. Well, it's hard to compare it down to seven. Huh? Yeah. I have a, like a cut list where it was like, <laughs> I got to 22. I called Josh. I'm like, I don't know how to take some of these out. Like some of these are, they're also the same. He's like, this is tough. You've got some, you know could Co and then he'd argue he's like that should come out that one should come out but oh, then right. I got down to 14 and I was like I don't know what to do just, the other seven could be just as much the same you know well, yeah it's a it's a challenging exercise it's tough it's for sure sport. it's virtually impossible really it right?
0: is but that just means another episode all right well thank you very much you guys for hosting me I appreciate it being in Seattle here and doing the show at the Starbucks Center thank you thank it you was great yeah it was, yeah, it was great fun yeah I enjoyed it This has been No Sleep to Subbery with Brent Jensen and Kevin Reed. Until next time, folks. Take care.
2: Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep to Subbery, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon worldwide.